I've chosen today to talk about grace, about amazing grace. And this is a word that is very familiar to many of us, especially in evangelical Protestant Christianity. Uh, grace is a, is a term that is common to our vocabulary. You know, we all know and we sing it. We know the word, you know, uh, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. We sing the songs and uh, we, we all can maybe recall the, uh, the sola gracia pronouncement by the reformers, uh, meaning uh, by grace alone. And so we, we see that. We also study the scriptures. Many of us and many of you here are, are uh, great memorizers of God's word. And, you know, that the scripture in Ephesians 2 comes to mind, you know, where, where it says that for by grace you have been saved through faith, right? It says, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God not a result of works so that no one may boast. We can find all those scriptures and, and, and discussions about grace, especially throughout a lot of the Pauline epistles. Uh, John, Peter also talk a lot about, about grace. And so we're going to talk about that. The notion of grace is essential, essential to our, our walk as Christians, as followers of Christ. If we don't come to grips with understanding what grace is all about, then we will not understand the gospel and its transformative power in our lives. So it's, I think it's important every now and then, you know, to kind of recalibrate and rethink and just kind of make sure that we're really uh, approaching this topic with the significance and the awe that it deserves. Grace is the distinctive of Christianity. It is through grace that we are saved, through Christ Jesus, right? We all talk about that and espouse that. It is, it is by His grace. It is His initiative. And hopefully what you'll hear today, what we're discussing, is that it's all God's initiative. He is the saving God. He is the gracious God. He doesn't give up on us. And so while we're going to be talking and focus probably more on, on the salvation aspect of grace, what we've got to understand is that even as we walk with Christ, after we've been saved in Christ Jesus, that his grace continues to be poured out upon us, and because that's the God he is. It was C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis, uh, when he uh, still uh, lived on this earth uh, many years ago, he was at a, a conference on comparative religions, where they had uh, pa pastors and scholars and teachers from all these various religions and, um, and they were all debating what made Christianity different amongst world religions. And there was this big, great big commotion and hubbub, and, and C.S. Lewis was out of the room at the time, and he walks into the room, and he, and he says, well, what, what's all the commotion about? And they, try, and they explain to, to C.S. Lewis what the, what the story is. He says, oh, well, that's simple. It's grace. It's grace. So it, it truly is. And, uh, but since we use it, that word, so extensively, it could become like the paint on the walls. It could become like the wallpaper. It could become so familiar, so comfortable to, to our vocabulary. It just becomes a word that rolls off our, our lips without really any deep appreciation for what we are talking about. So I think we have to, Pastor Jeff always talks about this, that every day we should be preaching the gospel to ourselves. Because, because we are so inclined to go off track so inclined to go into the performance-based system of the world, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, that we need to constantly come back and recalibrate and remind ourselves of what this great gift of grace is of God. So if I ask right now, I think somebody said it, I think it might have been Steve, you know, if I ask right now what is the standard definition of grace, I think many of you will 
give me the standard answer. You know, you guys are well-educated, biblical people. You probably answer, you know, it's the unmerited favor of God. The unmerited favor of God, right? We know that intellectually. We assent to it. It's, it's really the flip side of the same coin of mercy. So you hear mercy and grace. And mercy is, is those things that we don't get which we truly deserve. And grace is those things which we get which we don't deserve. So it's unmerited favor of God. But here's the question. I want us to think about this as I'm talking. And as we go forth this week, please don't leave this week, this day without going forth this week and doing some mental homework, some spiritual homework on your part and be asking yourself, how significant is this gift to me? Do I meditate on that? I ask you to meditate on this gift this week. Or has our love for our Lord grown cold? Kind of like a marriage. A marriage can do that, right? You know, we can be so in love. And then years pass, and then, we've, then we figure out that we lost the joy of that love that was way back when. I've forgotten the joy of my salvation. And so this is what I'm calling us back to today. I myself have... Uh, wrestled with this idea, and I, and I thank my Lord God that he continues as, as, as I open myself to, to his, his uh, revelation is to try and understand more and more about, for my own sake, what is this gift of grace. I, I remember the first time I really seriously started thinking about this. It was over 20 years ago now, over 20 years ago when my dear friend, uh, and I was still in the Roman Catholic uh, tradition, my dear friend gave me the book by Max Lucado, In the Grip of Grace. And I read that book, and I was like, what is this? What is this grace? And I've been wrestling with it ever since, and, I, and I've not stopped, and, I, and it continues to, to confound me as I, as I take in the depths and the riches of what our Lord has done for us. In today's readings, you'll notice that those three readings that I, that I chose for today all come from the Gospels. All from the Gospels. And not a single time in either of those three readings is the word grace mentioned. But yet, you read those, those scriptures, and we're going to go over them a little bit. Grace seeps and is poured out from those word stories that our Lord has, has saved for us, has given to us. In fact, uh, it's, uh, it's significant uh, to note that our Lord never once mentioned the word grace throughout all the Gospels. Not once did he use that word grace in any of the Gospels. We see it significantly, obviously, in the Pauline epistles in the New Testament. We do see in some of the scriptures where the Lord is praying, and he talks about his Father's gracious will. He does that on occasion. But he never uses the word grace. See, the thing is, the reason why I think that's the case is because, see, Jesus is the personification. He is the incarnation. He is God's act of amazing grace to this world and to his people. So Jesus is the pinnacle. The Gospels are the pinnacle of grace revealed for us. Um, I will mention one other time that, that when the Lord does, uh, does mention uh, the word grace, and that is actually found in 2 Corinthians. It's the only time that the Lord actually mentions it when Paul is asking uh, uh, that the Lord uh, deliver him from the thorn in his, in his flesh. And the Lord says, uh, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. 
So <clears throat> some others will argue, some will argue that, that grace then is maybe a New Testament uh, idea, that it's something that's ushered in new, that the Lord in the Old Testament was not a God of grace, that he was a God of, of law and condemnation, of judgment, and, 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 and God in the New Testament is the God of grace. Well, that's not true. It's not true. And we're going to go through that in a second. I just wanted to do a quick uh, uh, survey with you of the scriptures that come from the Old Testament just to kind of show us the God that we serve, the God that's pursuing God that's from the very beginning has always been pursuing a people for himself, always wanting to give and initiate and always wanting to, 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 to come to us and, and, and invite us into a relationship with himself. And we see that, if I could take you all the way back to the beginning, all the way back in the beginning, grace begins. Genesis 1, the creation there was no reason for the Lord to create. The creation was given to us because of his great outpouring love. It was a gift that poured out of his, out of his amazing uh, uh, love, and, and it would be for his glory. But even shortly thereafter, in, in, in Genesis 3, we'll read where mankind, through, in our, person, uh, in our uh, uh, parents, our first parents, Adam and Eve, where they, they rebel against the Lord, and, and instead of the Lord... Uh, you know, he could have extinguished them at that point. He could have killed them at that point. He could have done away with, you know, done away with them completely. But he, but he chose not to. In, in, in the Genesis 3, they, it tells us that they realized that they were naked. And the Lord graciously in that moment offers them clothing to cover their nakedness. So we see it from the very beginning that the Lord in his gracious heart is always going to give to his people. Even as they uh, disobey him, uh, they, uh, he continues to pursue them. We read this in Genesis 9. Genesis 9, he gives the world another opportunity. While the world had fallen into tremendous wickedness and rebellion, and, and the Lord brings judgment upon those people, at the same time, he graciously saves Noah and his, and his family so that the people of the world can repopulate the earth. In, uh, later on in, in uh, the historical books, in 2 Kings, and this is 2 Kings is a point in time when um, the kings of Israel and of Judah are, are uh, in, in a tremendous state of apostasy, in rebellion against the, the law of God. And they're, and they're just giving their hands to God and saying, you know, shove off. We're going to go worship other gods. We're going to get into all kinds of idolatrous practices. In, in fact, horrendous practices of, of self-sacrifice and other things like that. And in the midst of this, quoting God and says in 2 Kings 13, it says, But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them. And he turned toward them because of, the, of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and would not destroy them nor has he cast them from his presence until now. In Nehemiah, after the uh, Israelites had been exiled for their great disobedience uh, and rebellion against God, they were sent off in exile by God into Babylon. They are now returning, and Nehemiah is recalling for them all that God has done, and he's recalling for them what, what happened to the first Israelites who were lost in the desert, who were disobedient against God in the desert, and they had to wander in the desert for 40 years. And this is what Nehemiah was reminding them of. He says, they refused, they, that first generation of Israelites, they refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. See, this God is not one to give up. He recognizes that if those people were left amongst themselves, they would be lost forever. But God did not. God initiates and God gives of himself to invite them back into relationship. And here, and we'll read it throughout Psalms. If you pick up the Psalms and you do a word search in Psalms, you'll find grace and God's graciousness throughout those, those uh, scriptures where David and the psalmist are constantly proclaiming the grace of God, the graciousness of God. And I'll just highlight one here. It's Psalm 103. And it says, The Lord, David is saying, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. In the prophets... Again, this is a time of, of at the end of the, of the Israelite kingdom, of the end of the Judahite kingdom. The Israelites have been uh, conquered by Assyria, and the Israelites down in Judah have been exiled over to Babylon. And uh, Jer- these prophets, Jeremiah uh, was, a, was a prophet of the exile. And he's also recalling that, uh, that God was a gracious God even of those in the, in the desert. And he says, uh, Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 31, Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. So even while God was, was bringing discipline and bringing judgment upon those people, that he was extending grace to protect them and to hold a remnant for himself uh, that they would be uh, his people. Jonah, re- recall the story of Jonah, right? The story of Jonah where jo- God was asked Jonah to go and... Um, and tell the people of Nineveh, you know, repent or the judgment will come upon you. And Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh. Jonah went to Tarshish instead. And, you, and if you follow the story, it was all not good for Jonah. But Jonah finally comes back and, and God says, hey, I'm sending you to Nineveh. You better you know, go and preach my word. Ask them to per, uh, repent. And, and, uh, and, and, and Jonah replies, he says, this is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Because for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We read this again and again about the grace, the grace of God, the gracious God that we serve. And finally, I'll offer to you the, another prophet, the prophet of Zechariah in, in chapter 12. And here we read a scripture that is a, uh, a prophecy of the Messiah. And giving a prophecy of that new age of grace, that pinnacle age of grace, the epitome that would be exemplified in the incarnation, the personification of our Lord Jesus, and his coming to die for our sins. And Zechariah, Zechariah, by the way, who was, uh, he was actually born in Babylon, uh, and he was brought back with all the first Israelites back to, to Jerusalem, and here he is, and he's, and he's talking to the Israelites, and he's prophesying. And I will pour out, this is Zechariah 12, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, it's interesting, by the way, when they look on me, on him who they have pierced. It's the Lord speaking through the prophet. When they look on me whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a first, over a firstborn. Zechariah is prophesying, prophesying the new age of, of, of grace that's going to be ushered in with the, with the Messiah. So turning to today's readings in the Gospels, the first reading I show you there um, was, was the story about the Canaanite woman. Canaanite being a, 
a Gentile woman, not a Jew. And she's talking to the Lord. And I want you to catch a few things. And these are the things that I try to uh, bring out in, in, by selecting these three scriptures. She says, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. She has a great, great need. She is desperate, and she has no one to turn to. She doesn't know where to go. She has really no hope. She's not coming with something to offer the, the, the Lord, the Messiah, in exchange for healing her daughter. She's not saying that she'll do something for him. She's simply proclaiming a need have mercy on me. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. And she says later, she says, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. You can almost hear the desperation. Her daughter is oppressed and, and she has no idea what to do with it. What to do to heal her daughter, how to save her daughter. And, and the Lord says, you know, I've only come for Israel, and that's a whole other sermon. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, it's not right to give the children's bread to the, to the dogs. Um, and she turns around, she says, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. She is, she is willing to take anything. She knows that even the crumbs will be enough. She has this desperate, desperate need, and she's pleading with the Lord. She's crying out to the Lord, help me, and I'll take anything from you, Lord. I'll take anything from you, Lord. In our second reading, the Lord Jesus says, in the last day of the great day of feast, Jesus stood up and cried, saying, catch this, if any man thirst, if any man thirst, not if any man should follow the Torah meticulously, perfectly, not if you've brought all your sacrifice to the temple properly. He says, if any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. If any man has that deep longing, that deep need, of thirst, of spiritual thirst. He's here. He's here to give you living waters. For as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, our Lord says. So the Lord is conveying to us, I think, through these two scriptures, is that what grace is communicated here is that it has nothing to do with what we bring to the table. Not a single thing. Not our religiosity, not our prayer, not our confession, not our, um, our prayer life, not our uh, following all the, all the commandments. Nothing. All we bring to this table is that we have a desperate, desperate need and we don't know what to do about it. And we are at the end of our rope and we are lost without His grace. Without His grace. 
there was a, this great, uh, wonderful Irish uh, and great and renowned uh, theologian, Irish theologian. His name is uh, Bono. Anybody? Yeah. He has something to say about this, and I, I find it refreshing because it's so kind of real. He's talking about, about this grace thing. He says, it's a mind-blowing concept that the God who created the universe might be looking for company, a real relationship with people. But the thing that keeps me on my knees is the difference between grace and karma. You see, at the center of all religions is this idea of karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, or in physics, in physical laws, every action is met by an equal and opposite reaction, right? It's clear to me that karma is at the very heart of the universe, our broken universe, I would add. I'm absolutely sure of it. And yet along comes this idea called grace and upends all, that, all this as you reap you will sow stuff. Grace defies reason and logic. Love interrupts, if you will, the consequences of our actions, which in my case is very good news indeed because I've done some, a lot of stupid stuff. Done a lot of stupid stuff. You know, this, I was really, I was really, it really helped me kind of uh, take a look around when I read that. Because if you look around, we are saturated in karma. It permeates everything that exists in our society. Our minds are so inclined toward karma. That's why grace is so hard to accept. If you think about it, from our little ages with our kids, with sports teams and travel teams and college admissions, best SAT scores, good GPAs, performance, performance, performance. You do, you get, right? Job promotions, pay raises, social media, Instagram likes. Man, how many can I get of those? Facebook likes. When it doesn't happen, what does that do to our soul? Oh, man, nobody likes my Facebook posts. Right? Financial credit. I got to pay my bills. I got to do things. Everywhere, everything, if you think about it, everything around us is rooted in this idea of karma. And it was like, boom, it, it was enlightening to me. And so when we talk about grace, we, we, this is why I was talking about recalibrating every day, about preaching the gospel every day to ourselves, because if we don't, where do we go? Bam! Back to karma. Even as believers saved by the blood of Jesus, we still think we have to do something for our Lord. And our Lord wants to have a loving relationship with us, a father-son, father-daughter relationship with us, not demanding things of you, not conditioning his love for, uh, in any way for, uh, for you. That's what he desires for us. And yet, we will always inch, away, inch that way because of the world that we are steeped in. You know, I mean, it just, it just uh, something happened recently, I'll just share with you, that it really highlighted what, what this is all about. You know, here I am, I've been telling you, I've been struggling for, with grace and trying to take in grace and understand grace and, and 
stand in awe of grace all, you know, these last 20 years trying to wrestle with it. And just uh, recently, um, I started using this app, uh, a sleep app, you know, uh, that Carol uh, had been using. It's a, it's a really cool app. I don't know what it's called, sleep app or whatever. And, um, you know, it, it kind of measures, uh, you put it on your, your, your bed or your body on your nightstand, and it measures, you know, how your quality of your sleep. It'll tell you, you know, did you go to deep sleep? Did you, were you light sleep? You know, did you go REM and so forth and so on? It's really kind of cool. What I found out was I was becoming enslaved to this doggone app. I mean, it was causing me problems with my sleep. You know, I mean, I was like thinking, oh, God, am I really going into REM? i got to concentrate, you know? <laughs> and I was telling Carol about this, and she says, David, put that thing down. You're enslaved to it. You're so performance-driven, she says. Bam. Bam. Aren't we? I know I am. I don't know about you guys. Maybe you all are just comfortable and grace, and you're just really good with that. I am not. I struggle with it all the time. That's kind of my makeup. So it's wonderful to recalibrate and rethink about what our Lord has done, not what I do. The Lord has done. The last scripture um, I want to uh, read for you again, again is, is uh, highlights um, something that I think is a real challenge for us, and that is who gets grace. Who gets grace? Our Lord, uh, this was uh, what, what, I've, what I've extracted here is, a, is the preface, the kind of the preamble to the, uh, the parable of the great banquet, and, uh, which we'll actually go over next week. But it's the preamble to that. And the Lord is saying, uh, he said also to the man who had, who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. Karma, right? But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the cripple, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. You know, when I, I'm, I'm just as an aside, I, um, I don't know if you remember with the Lord in, in, when he was saying goodbye to the elders at Ephesus in Acts, the book of Acts. Um, it was the one thing that the, the Lord, he didn't say this in the Gospels, but he says it is better to give than to receive, the Lord says. Paul recalled saying that. I, just an aside, I, I just thought when I read that, that I, I, I remembered that. But he says, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. Grace. They cannot repay you. If I asked you right now, I said, you know, would it be easy to you know, help the poor? Possibly help a crippled person. Help um, you know, somebody who, who is blind. I think most of you probably say, yeah, I, I could do that. I'd help them. I've got compassion in my heart. Here's the question. Think about that person maybe in your life. Maybe not even a personal person, you know, somebody that you know personally, but maybe somebody, a persona on the TV. That you almost feel hate for, or maybe have felt hate for. 
you would call an enemy, would you help them? Would you help them? You see, this is what our gracious God has done. The word says, while we were still enemies, he saved us. He loved us. Grace. All his initiative. All grace. What can an enemy do for somebody who wants to help him out? What would an enemy do? An enemy would probably tell you to shove off, right? That's what we've done. And he still invites us. In his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, Philip Yancey tells a story that I think um, really touches upon this concept of who should receive grace. This story takes place in the 1960s. And I don't know if, you've, if none of you have read that book. Uh, it's really interesting. I didn't realize that uh, his background, uh, you know, he actually, he actually admits to being a, a, a racist uh, segregationist who grew up in the South um, before coming to the Lord. And, um, but he tells a story uh, that happened in the 1960s in, in uh, segregated uh, Mississippi. And uh, the characters in this story, there's four. One is, uh, or there's two of them that are, that are Christian ministers. One's a pastor. His name is Will Campbell. And he's a pastor, Yale Divinity grad, uh, really wanted to help with integration, uh, you know, social activist, and, and, his, and his dear friend, Jonathan Daniels. And, uh, and then there's this uh, kind of like an antagonist in, in the story, um, and his name is P.D. East. He's a reporter, atheist slash agnostic, don't really know, reporter, who's like uh, Campbell's thorn in his side. And P.D. East is constantly confronting Campbell, you know, with his faith. You know, are you real about this faith? Is this real? You know, do you, do you uh, really embrace what you, what you profess? And uh, one day he asked him, he says, okay, tell me, summarize the Christian message in 10 words or less. And this was pre-Twitter, by the way, you know, 10 words or less. And so he, you know, Campbell, I apologize if this offends anybody, but Campbell... Um, you know, thought about it, thought about it, and PDEs kept pressing him, and he says, got it. We're all bastards, and God still loves us. Meaning, we're all illegitimate. We have no father, and God still loves us. And he said, okay. So time passed, and they were uh, in front of a storefront, protesting Campbell and, and uh, Daniels, protesting a white-only store. And uh, this sheriff by the name of Thomas Coleman at, from Alabama comes up, and I don't know what happens exactly, but a dispute happens, and Coleman shoots Daniels and kills him. After that, P.D. East confronts Campbell again while he's still in sorrow, still in mourning, so it's a very difficult time for him. And uh, P.D. East, remarkably, asked him again, were they both bastards? And so Campbell thinks about it. It was easy for him to, to say, 
Coleman, he can see Coleman, the guy who killed his dear friend, as being an illegitimate, fatherless person. It was more difficult for him to say that his friend was a bastard. But what it did for him is it shook him up to the core. And it made him realize that, in fact, they were. They were both illegitimate, fatherless souls in need of grace. And so Campbell realized that 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 is what Christ came for. That if Christ did not die for the Colemans of the world, then there really is no good news. There really is no gospel. And it turns out that this so profoundly changed Campbell that he resigned all of his uh, positions in, in working for social activism and working with minorities and so forth, that he became what was, what was eventually termed the apostle to the redneck. Because he, he felt there was a lot of ministry going on elsewhere, that he felt that there was nobody ministering, preaching the gospel of grace to the Thomas Coleman's of the world. You see, we are all the Thomas Coleman's of the world. We are all paupers. We are all beggars and thieves. We are all impoverished. We are all fatherless and illegitimate outside of the grace of God. But see, God in His great mercy sent His only Son as the pinnacle act of grace, gift of grace, that he should go and die on a cross for our sake and that whoever should believe in him will have eternal life. Nothing that you do will merit that. It was all him, all his initiative, all his merit, all his righteousness. Righteousness. 